the extraordinary powers of the human mind. Episode 3. Minds that create thought forms with minds of their own. In some cultures, it's accepted without question that human beings can create entities with a mind of their own. There are many examples quoted in metaphysical literature, but one that illustrates the point well is that chronicled by Alexandra David Neal. She was one of those extraordinary women of the late 19th and early 20th centuries who journeyed alone to live with remote tribes or cultures. It was in Tibet where she studied the mystical subject of tulpa creation. A tulpa, according to traditional Tibetan doctrines, is an entity brought to life by an act of imagination rather like the fictional characters of a novelist, except that tulpas are not written down but actually appear as three-dimensional living figures. David Neal became so interested in the concept that she decided to try to create a tulpa herself. And she succeeded. Apparently, people who came into contact with Neal reported a jolly, plump young monk in her presence that seemed to be a servant of some kind. But as time went by, the jolly, plump young monk started to metamorphose into a thin, foul-mouthed pervert that tried to make Neil's life a misery. It's worth quoting verbatim here from her book, Magic and mystery in Tibet. However interested we may feel in the other strange accomplishments with which Tibetan adepts of the secret law are credited, the creation of thought forms seems by far the most puzzling. Phantoms, as Tibetans describe them, and those that I myself have seen, do not resemble the apparitions which are said to occur during spiritualist seances. As I've said, some apparitions are created on purpose, either by a lengthy process, or, in the case of proficient adepts, instantaneously, or almost instantaneously. In other cases, apparently, the author of the phenomenon generates it unconsciously, and is not even in the least aware of the apparition being seen by others. She goes on. However, the practice is considered as fraught with danger for everyone who's not reached a high mental and spiritual degree of enlightenment, and is not fully aware of the nature of the psychic forces at work in the process. Once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the real thing, it detends to free itself from its maker's control. This, say Tibetan occultists, happens nearly mechanically, just as the child, when his body is completed and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. Sometimes the phantom becomes a rebellious son, and one hears of uncanny struggles that have taken place between magicians and their creatures, the former being severely hurt or even killed by the latter. 
Tibetan magicians also relate cases in which the tulpa is sent to fulfil a mission but doesn't come back and pursues its peregrinations as a half-conscious, dangerously mischievous puppet. The same thing, it is said, may happen when the maker of the tulpa dies before having dissolved it. Yet, as a rule, the phantom either disappears suddenly at the death of the magician, or gradually vanishes like a body that perishes for want of food. On the other hand, some tulpas are expressly intended to survive their creator, and are specially formed for that purpose. David Neal then gives an account of her own attempt to create a tulpa. In order to avoid being influenced by the forms of the Lamaist deities, which I saw daily around me in paintings and images, I chose for my experiment a most insignificant character, a monk, short and fat, of an innocent and jolly type. I shut myself in psalms, which are occult rituals, and proceeded to perform the prescribed concentration of thought and other rites. After a few months, the phantom monk was formed. His form grew gradually, fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest, living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started on a tour with my servants and tents. The monk included himself in the party. Though I lived in the open, riding on horseback for miles each day, the illusion persisted. I saw the fat tulpa now and then, and it was not necessary for me to think of him to make him appear. The phantom performed various actions of the kind that are natural to travellers, and that I'd not commanded. For instance, he walked, stopped, looked around him. The illusion was mostly visual, but sometimes I felt as if a robe was lightly rubbing against me, and once a hand seemed to touch my shoulder. The features which I had imagined when building my phantom gradually underwent a change. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped my control. I ought to have let the phenomenon follow its course. Once a herdsman, who brought me a present of butter, saw the tulpa in my tent and took it for a living llama. But the presence of that unwanted companion began to prove trying to my nerves. It turned into a day nightmare. Moreover, I was beginning to plan my journey to Laza and needed a quiet brain devoid of other preoccupations, so I decided to dissolve the phantom. I succeeded, but only after six months of hard struggle. My mind creature was tenacious of life. There's nothing strange in the fact that I may have created my own hallucination. The interesting point is that in these days of materialization, others also see the thought forms that have been created. David Neal's story indicates the ability of thought itself to take on a more permanent form, and leave the control of the creator, and assume a life and intelligence of its own, and then put up quite a fight 
to maintain its existence. Another example of minds creating a being of some sort is the well-documented tale of Philip the Ghost. In the 1970s, a group of Canadian parapsychologists experimented to see if they could create a phantom, proving their theory that the human mind can produce spirits through expectation, imagination and visualisation. The group of between eight and ten people met regularly. First they agreed a fictional backstory for a 17th century aristocrat, who they called Philip. Then they had practice sessions where they would meditate to try to conjure Philip up. You have to give them full marks for persistence because they kept at it for a year without any success. So they switched tactics using a seance formula, but with some major differences. No one would be the lead medium and they would keep the room well lit. At last, an invisible entity began to make itself known. Using a system of knocks for yes and no, they began to quiz Philip, who would give them answers along the lines of his biographical details. The seance room table creaked, groaned and moved around without human intervention. As the weeks went by, it would perform more startling actions like rushing to greet a newcomer, chase someone round the room and distort itself by raising only one of its legs. And on one occasion it even bit a participant by trapping part of her hand between the two edges of its corner joint. So, although Philip never reached the stage of physical manifestation, an entity of sorts had been created just by the intent of human minds. The above Two examples would suggest that we should be extremely careful of what thoughts we have. It sounds as if it's much safer and more likely to contribute to the well-being of the planet if we think constructively and positively and think only kind thoughts of our fellow human beings. Many of the topics I cover in these podcasts are explored in all my Psychic Mind series of books. Their titles are Unlock the Psychic Powers of Your Unconscious Mind, In Tune with the Infinite Mind, and Dows Your Way to Psychic Power. You can find Kindle, printed and audiobook versions of them all on Amazon. Just put Anthony Talmage in the book search field. Or they're available from all other good ebook stores. And check out the footer to this series for more details. Coming up in episode 4, Putin's defeat begins in the psychic realm with the egregore.